My name is Carmen Leif Jenkins and I work for the World Stroke Organisation. With this podcast, I'm hoping to take you on a journey from Australia to Japan on a project that has global implications for stroke survivors and stroke research and will have significant impact on stroke treatment in Japan. This unique situation is an example of what happens when groups come together to form coalitions and pressure and inform governments into supportive policies that can truly influence the coalface of care. Our first stop is Bev Hopper. She is from Newcastle, Australia and had a stroke five years ago at the age of 65. And we're talking to Bev and with her is Gillian Mason, a patient supporter who brings research and and patients together. And later we'll chat to Mr Kawakatsu because it's important for us to know the difficulties faced by stroke survivors from the onset of their stroke and then how they battle a system that struggles due to so many blocks for implementation of best care and practice. We also want to identify in this podcast how important it is to have patient collaboration. Now, let me introduce you to Bev. I'd just taken long service leave from that and I'd been helping my daughter who had breast cancer and I'd looked after her and her little kids while she went through mastectomy, chemotherapy. And it was only a week after she finished chemotherapy that I had my stroke, 19th of February 2016. So I'd been aching all over, too sick to drive myself up to the local hospital to the after-hour doctor, so I got a friend to take me up there. He sent me home taking endo, and I vomited for the next 24 hours. And I was just too sick the next night too. So I eventually asked another friend to take me up to John Hunter Hospital. When I got to John Hunter Hospital, they sent me off to one of their little cubicles and gave me two litres of fluids overnight. And then at five o'clock in the morning, they wrapped me in a blanket and sent me home in a taxi to an empty house. I was a bit horrified at that, really. If I'd been a bit more with it, I probably would have objected very strongly. That night, I was still feeling pretty crook, and I was just too terrified to be alone in my house that night, which was quite unusual because I'd been living by myself for a good 15 years. So a friend came out and she stayed with me that night. But in the morning when I tried to get up, I couldn't take my weight on my left foot. I just kind of collapsed on the floor. Fortunately, I was still able to talk, so I could call out to this friend and she came into my room. And together we decided that I'd had a stroke. And so she helped me back onto the bed and then she called the ambulance. If, if I hadn't had that friend here, I probably would have been just a collapsed heap on the floor and probably wouldn't have survived, I think. So it was all a bit grim, really. The ambulance were just brilliant. They put a cannula in the back of my hand. And then they took me down my front steps out into the ambulance. But I do remember seeing shadows and I do remember seeing trees going past us as I was lying there back my back. I do remember going through the MRI, which is a pretty horrible experience too, in that I was fine when I got there, although I couldn't move the left side of my body at all. Going through the MRI, they put a chalk underneath the back of my head and by the time I came out of that thing, I had a splitting migraine. It was just from the pressure of the blocks on the back of my head. I was in intensive care, I think, for about three days. Then I was just in, in the ward there for about a week, I think, before they moved me over to rehab section. And that was a pretty horrible place too, really. 
if you're thinking about implementation of care in the rehab section, far more nursing staff and far more bathrooms. To have one toilet for six plus patients is just not adequate. There were at least six patients in the ward I was in. And the guys from next door would come into our toilets. It was a female ward. So the guys from next door would come in if their toilets were awful. So we were really sharing with probably something more like about eight people. I was in rehab there for four to six months. The physio was one-on-one with an old physio, but the OTs are just part of a great big group, and I think if they can do one-on-one with physio, they should be able to do one-on-one with OT too. And I'm sure that my outcome with my left left arm would be a lot better if I'd had help early because I couldn't do anything much with my left hand in the big groups. I was kind of forgotten about. I just left sitting there. And then when it came to discharge, they called a family meeting, so all my five kids were there, an OT and a speech therapist and a nurse. So there was a nursing unit manager there as well, kind of having a conversation between themselves with the expert. And I, could, I was sitting there in my one-arm bandage wheelchair and I could see see the picture of my head up on the screen and just listening to them, I was just like a spot on the wall really. So my kids knew of what's happening, but I certainly didn't. And I found that terrifying. But eventually, as the, as the time went on, I could hear that they were going to send me to a nursing home. That's what they thought was going to happen. But fortunately, I had a daughter who's an OT, and she she wasn't going to have a part of that. I'm Gillian Mason, bringing people with stroke together with researchers and clinicians to make sure that when we're designing services and research studies, that patients and people with stroke, that their views and their experiences are included and respected. And That's you, important. Yeah, have, absolutely. Have a past experiences respected. So I kind of felt that I was just an inanimate object. Do you feel like if those barriers of people not being aware of your needs, of people not including you in your care, um, of having to do all that fighting, if that actually makes the process more exhausting, if you feel that people could get better quicker if they didn't have to have all those barriers? Absolutely. I'm sure we could make much better use of our therapies and stuff if we were actually encouraged and actually treated like human beings rather than just inanimate objects. I think that is something that's absolutely vital in organisation of services and in considering people's lived expertise and resilience and life experience that human people have when they come into a situation like this. Discount that and treat people like patients who aren't also human beings and equal adults. Then we can't get anywhere. So they just treat you like a sponge and they expect you to absorb it all, not give back. That's what I felt like. wasn't a conversation, wasn't an exchange, was it? Well, gracious, no. Bev's experience is so distressing and we're grateful that she's so generous in sharing it. Now we've got Bev involved in several research teams to make sure that everyone, including, and this is really important, including practitioners and researchers, end up in a better situation. Because currently spaces are underfunded and our systems are under-resourced and the way that they're organised, it doesn't value stroke survivors or practitioners really. Everyone wants to have an excellent experience. They want patients to have an excellent experience and to receive scientifically informed and best practice stroke care. What's happening in Japan now is going to ensure that both adequate resources are available as well as stroke survivors and their families are included in designing future services and directing how these treatments will be delivered. I think that's extraordinarily exciting. 
Well, we have genuinely excellent practitioners and world-class researchers in Australia, and there's fantastic research happening all around the world. The current system doesn't allow practitioners to apply the best evidence care in every situation. And now we move to Japan. You've heard a devastating story of stroke survival from Bev Hopper, a situation that nobody would ever want to be in. And having a stroke is not the only problem that a survivor and their families face. There is balance to the administration of healthcare that includes medical professionals, hospital administration and government funding and a whole lot of stuff in between. Imagine if you could overcome these hurdles with a legislated act of parliament. Well, in Japan it's called the Stroke Control Act and it is the first ever legislative measure against stroke and cardiovascular disease in Japan and I suspect in the world. Dr. Hirofumi Nakayama is a well-regarded neurologist with an interest in stroke. He is super enthusiastic about best care for stroke patients and he knows that this includes public awareness of stroke prevention and emergency responses, improvement of local emergency transport and medical systems, local medical facilities, quality of life for patients, improvement of coordination of relevant professionals, skills development of stroke professionals, improvement of information collection systems and consultation support systems for the patients. And finally, of course, the promotion of research. Dr. Nakayama and the Japanese Support Stroke Organization and the Japan Stroke Association have been one section of a coalition of instrumental groups pushing the Stroke and Cardiovascular Disease Control Act in the Japanese diet, which incorporates all of these wish list items. The diet, by the way, is the Japanese national legislature and the act will come into force next month in December 2019. So what this could mean is that there is a legal avenue to fight for best stroke care, meaning hospitals and clinics are obligated to provide the best stroke care and governments to fund it. My name is Hirofumi Nakayama. I'm a medical doctor and I'm executive director of Japan Stroke Association. Why do you think patient and professional collaboration is important in stroke advocacy? Uh, mainly two reasons. First, the voices of patients are more influential in gaining support of politicians, government officials and the citizens uh, compared to voices of professionals. The second reason is that the impact of stroke and problems which patients and family members are facing every day are more easily understood when they were spoken by themselves. How did you reach agreement on the key message of your lobby activities? Mm -hmm. Well, when we started the discussion of the original basic act, which is Stroke Control Act in 2008, there existed Cancer Control Act, which had been enacted two years before in Japan. 
So we use the same framework of cancer control act in preparation of a draft of stroke control act. Besides, in the ad hoc committee of Japan Stroke Association, uh, stakeholders of stroke, namely patients, professionals, and citizens, were well presented in the panel. The Japan Stroke Association has, has been connecting lay people and professionals. These 14 stroke-related societies were represented in the ad hoc committee, as I mentioned, and a consensus was made about the draft there during the discussion. That includes stroke patient groups, uh, academic societies, and occupational societies like uh, physiotherapist organization, occupational therapist organizations, speech therapist organizations, a society of the hospitals, emergency medicine, and citizens also. For, on the stroke side, we were aware of the key points uh, because we have discussed it in the, in the ad hoc committee. And uh, we also talked with the, on the, uh, the cardiovascular side, we shared the, the same conclusion. That is that we need this act to prolong the uh, healthy life expectancy of Japanese nation and reduce medical and social costs in this country. Do you have any advice about how you can mobilize patients, families and citizens? Well, first, uh, I think we need to invite all the stakeholders. Second, and make the concrete tactics, for example, a petition movement, telephone calls to politicians, or a visit to the a diet members, so on, and ask collaboration of the uh, uh, relevant people. They are eager to collaborate. Uh, that was our experience. How difficult was it to develop a new strategy after the second proposal was deterred? Mm -hmm. uh, we had maybe two barriers to overcome. The first one was political problem, and the second one was drug patient groups. Uh, as to political problem, in Japan, there is an unspoken rule concerning legislation by diet members, um, that is, all parties consent is prerequisite for the legislation. Unfortunately, some diet members had been against the Drug Control Act. Uh, they were afraid to have too many basic laws, uh, in case basic laws are made for every major disease. So we, uh, to persuade them, it was necessary to have stroke and cardiovascular disease together as target disease. Some stroke patient groups had been against the idea of including cardiovascular disease together because they were afraid that measures against stroke might be diluted as a result of sharing with cardiovascular disease. So we explain the merits of having stroke and cardiovascular disease together. That is common risk factor measures against both disease and political necessity as mentioned. And finally, they understood the merits and agreed. So what are the next activities that you're involved in? Where to now? Well, we are preparing for a basic plan to promote stroke and cardiovascular disease control programs. I'm sorry, it's a very long name. <laughs> um, the, this, this, this program will be discussed in the coming uh, governmental council that is called, it's a very long name too, Stroke and Cardiovascular Disease Control Promotion Council. And this is expected to be held in January 2020. And the Japan Stroke Association and Japan Stroke Society had set up eight project teams corresponding to eight basic domains of governmental measures prescribed in the Act. 
Just like Bev in Newcastle, Mr. Koakatsu is a stroke survivor situated in Japan within the Japanese system. And just like Bev, he is so glad to be alive. But he was not always happy with the treatment he and other survivors have received in the process of recovery. Mr. Koakatsu is a patient consultant for the lobby group for the legislation to address stroke and cardiovascular diseases. Through the translator, Julia, he tells us his story and motivation behind his work within this collaborative group of stakeholders. え、とですね、当時2004年の9月26日朝4時頃です。え、とっても暑い日でした。朝ですね。で、朝目覚めて喉がすごく乾いておりまして。それで私困ったわけですよ。もう空からで。で、水を飲みたいなと思って Yes, I remember it quite clearly. It was on September 26th in the year 2004, and it was about 4 a.m. in the morning. It was rather hot morning. And when I woke up, I was so thirsty. I was dying to get some water. But the fridge is on level one, on ground level, and I sleep on the second floor. In order to get some water, I had to actually walk down the, the first floor. But as I was trying to get up out of my bed to get some water, I really didn't feel any strength in my left arm. And then as I was leaning forward, as I was getting out of the bed, then I really felt no strength in my left leg at all. And I felt there was no floor under me. I just felt the floor was gone completely. And then, and then I fell and I hit the left side, but I felt no pain. What was it like for you when you were able to call emergency services? How does that process work in Japan? When I fell down, uh, my wife felt me falling down on the floor. So she tried to get me up and she ran to next door. And I have two sons. Uh, my older son is age 21 and the younger son is age 16. I couldn't speak. My, my wife realized something is strange. So she got my sons and they all pulled me up and I could actually stand up. However, that was a transient stroke. So basically a, a big full-on stroke was coming a bit later. Although I could stand up, they did realize that something was wrong. So my wife called an ambulance and then 20 to 30 minutes later, I was at the ER, at the emergency room. Because it was a bit a while ago, in 2004, first of all, yes, I, I mean, I was quite happy with the treatment, but I felt that the information from the hospital about what was happening to me about the treatment came a bit late. And I believe they've given me, at that time, they've given me antithrombotic meds and old medication and also some, some medication to prevent the inflammation within my brain, within my head. However, I do believe that the hospital did their best and especially at the rehab, when I was getting rehab treatment from PTs, I got a lot of advice. So I thought that the hospital, yes, they have done their best. Yes. 
For me, it was actually first time rehabilitation. So every day I've met with the PT and with the OT, and once a week I met with the ST. Person. So I had three people looking after me, and they're very helpful. And basically, with, with both with PT and with OT, I worked on the movement, the training for the movement for my left arm. And with the ST uh, person, I met them once a week, and we mainly in the small room, we were reading um, uh, picture books from all kind of historical uh, stories in Japan, and I was asked to open my mouth widely, and we practiced uh, my speech. However, it was only after I actually left the hospital that I realized um, that I was not explained so much uh, about the need for rehab. And I was just told to do the rehabilitation. I thought that maybe perhaps uh, the hospital could have explained a bit more about why the re rehabilitation is needed and that it speeds up the recovery process, etc. And after I left the hospital, I met another patient who was also a stroke survivor. And he was pushed also just do rehab, but he felt that, that there was no improvement with his arm movements and he was getting quite upset. So that's why I feel there needs to be more explanation and more guidance about why there's a need for rehabilitation for stroke patients. Now, going back to the discussion that we had about politics and what was happening with the diet, so mm -hmm. how difficult was it to develop a new strategy after the second proposal was deterred? First of all, how did you feel about that? And secondly, how was it to develop a new strategy? Because the law, not only for stroke, but also for cardiovascular conditions, I realized that only a small number of MPs or people in the, in the diet are um, opposition. A lot of the lawmakers were quite supportive. I had to work on finding the weak points of these people who are the opposition of forming the law. So I've basically asked a lot of people to approach and to talk to the uh, politicians who were in the opposition. And one of the points was about labor union. I was I was also approaching some people from the labor union and uh, uh, I basically put pressure on these MPs from multi-angles, from different networks. And one of other points that I've used was media attention. So I've uh, opened up kind of opinion exchange uh, meetings at the parliament and then we had the patient side and we had the MP sides and medical professionals and that also put uh, additional pressure on these politicians who were in the opposition. Fantastic. So what are the next activities that you're involved with? What's next for you? I would like to continue spreading the knowledge about stroke and really across the board nationally. And I do, I'm, I'm happy about the law, but that's not enough itself that the law has been established to form. People who experience stroke, some patients, or let's say stroke survivors, they have speaking difficulties, so they cannot actually talk about the experience and spread the awareness, and I'm really keen to do this. So one of the strategies or one of the approaches that we have at the Stroke Association is to form this so-called speaker bank system, basically make kind of a junior person of myself. So I would not only, it's not only me who is talking about people who experience stroke in one area, but also people across uh, Japan, in Kyushu, in South or West, 
or any places in Japan if they had an opportunity to talk to the general public and at forums and to have as many people to talk about the stroke experience, the survivors, and to spread the word not only, of course, to the um, general public, but also to uh, really form this alliance between the doctors and the patients. And I believe that that will uh, spread more awareness and educate the general public. The lobbying for an active parliament is not simple. As you've heard from both Dr. Hirofumi Nakayama and Mr. Kawakatsu via Julia, the translator, the Japanese diet has already approved a similar bill but for cancer. Applying just for an act on stroke became more and more complicated, especially as the legislature started to imagine itself inundated with requests from all areas of disease for bills. So the lobbyists had to shift tact and that wasn't always favorable to all of the stakeholders. And they included cardiovascular disease and the bill became the Stroke and Cardiovascular Disease Control Act. Now the real question is why does stroke matter? Well, this year alone, 14.5 million people will have had a stroke. 5.5 million people will have died as a result. 80 million people have survived stroke worldwide and many stroke survivors face significant challenges that include physical disability, communication difficulties, changes in how they think and feel, loss of work, income and social networks. So let's move now to Dr. Kumuro, and he's the president of the Japanese Circulation Society and is a professor and the chairman of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at the University of Tokyo. In Japan, cancer has been number one cause of death for over 30 years. And people know about cancer. In contrast, number two cause of death cardiovascular diseases, and number three cause, stroke, are not known in Japan. We doctors have been thinking that we should promote our activities to conquer stroke and cardiovascular diseases. And patients also would like to know more about diseases to improve their life and prevent many people from becoming diseases. To accomplish our hope, we concluded it is the best way to establish the basic act. So how did you reach agreement on the key message of your lobby activities? How, what was that process? What did it look like? So patient and public outreach is really important. We should enlighten people of what stroke and cardiovascular disease are and how they are prevented. Cancer is prevented by stopping smoking, but there are many ways to prevent stroke and cardiovascular diseases because they are caused not only by genetic background, but also by bad lifestyles, such as intake of much salt, alcohol and fat, less exercise and smoking. Even after development of stroke and cardiovascular diseases, immediate treatment can risk life with less after effects. Um, 
in terms of prevention, our center figures are people and patients, but not doctors. Therefore, understanding and collaboration by citizens are indispensable. So after establishment of basic act, we should carry out five-year strategy for stroke and cardiovascular diseases to prove that the basic act is really important. And we also expect that the government would greatly support us. I would like to explain five strategies specifically. First, contemplizing healthcare. Heart failure has been becoming a big problem in Japan. The number of patients and deaths by heart failure has been increasing because of super aging. Acute care is most important to treat myocardial infarction, but in case of heart failure, not only acute care, but also seamless care during recovery period and chronic stage are also important. So we should contemplate healthcare system for heart failure. So next training and development to take our heart failure patients from acute to chronic stages, development of not only specialists, but also general physicians, nurses, pharmacists, physical therapists, and occupational therapists are necessary. Patient registry database development, we should know how many patients of stroke and cardiovascular diseases are there in Japan, how they are treated, and what the treatment results are. The Japanese circuit societies have made over 60 clinical guidelines, but we do not know how many doctors treat patients by following the guidelines and whether the treatments followed by guidelines are really good or not. To know them, we should need patient registry and database. Patient public outreach, as I mentioned before, it is very important for people and patients to know what stroke and cardiovascular diseases are and how they are prevented from development and recurrence. The rest, accelerating clinical and basic research. Cancer treatment goes into new stage. Patients of cancer can be cured or live much longer than before because new treatments have been developed for cancer, which are based on the mechanisms of cancer. In contrast, the mechanism of, of stroke and cardiovascular diseases are not known and there are few treatments for stroke and cardiovascular diseases based on the mechanisms. We should do more basic research on stroke and cardiovascular diseases and develop novel treatment for them based on the mechanisms. We should do also clinical research based on new findings of basic research and should develop, develop new drugs and devices. Otherwise, it is difficult to accomplish healthy longevity. Now we speak to Sarah Belson, who is the International Development Officer with the World Stroke Organization. 
She leads the work that supports the development of patient stroke support organisations, or what we call SSOs, around the world. SSOs have a crucial role in achieving the World Stroke Organization's mission to reduce the global burden of stroke through prevention, treatment and long-term care. They engage in research on the incidence and impact of stroke, particularly where data is limited. They increase awareness and knowledge of stroke in the community level, provide long-term support to stroke survivors and their families and campaign for change and influence government and decision makers for improvements in stroke care. Let's hear from Sarah. Patient stroke support organisations engage in a range of activities from stroke awareness to delivering long-term support services and engaging in campaigning and advocacy to influence stroke policy and ultimately improve stroke care. And earlier in the year, I was lucky enough to, to visit Japan and spend some time with the Japan Stroke Association which is a stroke support organisation and is a member of the World Stroke Organisation. And I was really impressed by the work that they had done along with professional medical organisations such as Japan Stroke Society and the Japanese Circulation Society to develop the basic act on cardiovascular diseases and stroke. And the Japan Stroke Association collaborated with these organisations and ensured that the voice of people affected by stroke was heard in these discussions. Patient collaboration is really important because patients offer us unique insights into what it is like to um, experience a stroke and to deal with the effects of stroke. So they help us understand how stroke affects people's daily lives and the challenges and needs that stroke survivors face as they try to navigate healthcare systems around the world. Now, we know that it's really difficult for survivors, especially as individuals, to navigate those systems. Have you got any anecdotes that you can tell us or any kind of stories that you can tell us about some of those navigations and things that you've heard out in the out in the world and how this system that we have now can kind of allay that and give it some sort of you know energy as it's as as it's that powerful collaboration can you give us some anecdotes to when it hasn't been the case so I think what we have to remember is that people are affected by stroke are not only trying to navigate the healthcare system in their particular context, they also might be dealing with a, a range of different um, effects of stroke, both cognitive, physical, emotional. They also might be accessing care or receiving care from a range of different healthcare professionals, and they might be receiving that care in different settings, so primary, secondary, and community. So we need to ensure that patients have access to full and accurate information so that they can be equal partners in their own care, that they can be part of discussions with, from an informed perspective, that they're not just recipients of healthcare without fully understanding the reasons why they're being offered particular interventions and why they're having them at particular times. So 
what I'm really talking about is empowered patients and carers that have an informed and active voice in discussions. And what this ultimately means is that we have a more effective and efficient healthcare system and that stroke survivors, their families, carers can help to mitigate some of the challenges that come about through gaps in the healthcare system. Now we have doctors and we have specialists who work in the field of stroke who do years and years of research, who do years of university, who then go on to build and develop guidelines, which is you know using all the you know best based evidence. Why do we need patients to have some kind of say in that system instead of the experts? Why is their voice important in that context? I think it's important to say that medical professionals, families, and people affected by stroke are all experts. So bringing the voice and experience of people affected by stroke to the table is not undermining the expertise and the years of training of medical professionals. It's about complementing that with uh, the lived experience. Um, and that experience can offer really incredible insights into to what it is like to live with the effects of stroke on a daily basis, where there might be gaps in research, where there might be um, priority areas for research, um, and things that um, doctors and researchers might be missing. So it is not at all about um, undermining professional expertise it's about complementing it I think the important thing in the Japanese case is that you had a range of different stakeholders that were bringing their particular insights and their particular backgrounds to a joint meeting and my um, understanding of that collaboration is that they had a shared goal and that shared goal is about improving stroke care across the country. And by bringing together different stakeholders, working in a collaborative way, um, you had a more comprehensive act, you had an act that was realistic, you have an act that um, has the opportunity um, to be fully implemented because the implementation process also brings in a range of different stakeholders who will be able to, to take the areas of the act that are most relevant to them and look at how practically that can be in, in implemented within particular contexts. So looking at the resource needs, looking at how um, volunteer engagement could support delivery of the act, looking at areas where public education needs to be enhanced, looking at areas where um, medical professionals' education needs to be enhanced. So I think by bringing all these, these different stakeholders together, the basic act has become much more comprehensive um, and it's it, the 
the uh, likelihood of it being implemented efficiently and effectively are um, enhanced by the fact that there are stakeholder groups involved in those discussions. This is a great example of collaboration between patients, stroke support organisations and medical professionals in achieving improved stroke policy and then to recognise that it doesn't stop with the achievement of the policy. That policy now has to be implemented. So this collaboration and this um, uh, focus on collaboration is um, for the long term. So it's looking at how this act can now be implemented in the most effective way. And so I'm really impressed by that, that the collaboration um, didn't wasn't just about getting that act passed. It was it's also about ensuring that the act is implemented in a in a realistic way, and that it is the delivery of that act is monitored. There's still such a long way to go globally to achieve best, well-funded stroke care for all. From bench to bedside to home, we need funding, good models, and lots of support. But this piece of legislation is a small revolution with Japan leading the way. We see more and more a real understanding of the importance of recovery and rehabilitation, excellent and fast acute care for stroke patients and post-stroke supports for survivors, including mental health, cognitive capacity, physical movement, fatigue management, and lots more. But the efforts of Dr. Nakayama and Kumoro and Mr. Kawakatsu are to be applauded and modelled. Thank you so much to Bev Hopper, Gillian Mason, Sarah Belson, Julia the translator, Drs. Nakayama and Kumoro and Mr. Kawakatsu for their time and insights and support for making this podcast. I'm Carmen Leif Jenkins, Managing Editor of the International Journal of Stroke, which is the flagship publication of the World Stroke Organization. The World Stroke Organization is the peak global body at the forefront of the fight against the global burden of stroke. Please consider becoming a member to support our work on the front lines. <laughs>